From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, on the cusp of a big election, the topics you're never supposed to broach in polite company, politics and religion. We meet three Colorado faith leaders who are taking on the political divide in their congregations and in this country. If you just give a soft music and candlelight sermon, a (laughs) feel-good sermon, and people go back out into the world and are exhibiting racism and kindness, you've missed the mark as a pastor. I think we make a great mistake if we assume that Hebrew and Christian scripture is politically neutral. What we have in scripture is a deep and eternal commitment toward people who are oppressed, those who are hungry. A lot of times we talk about our role as faith leaders is to have one arm that's comforting and one arm that's pushing. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An important and difficult and maybe awkward conversation on today's show. Election Day is almost here, and we're going to talk about the nexus between politics and faith. What role do places of worship have in contributing to the political divide in this country and in healing it? A House Divided is the new book from Pastor Mark Feldmeyer of St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch. The subtitle, Engaging the Issues Through the Politics of Compassion. Also with us, Reverend Amanda Henderson, author of Holy Chaos, Creating Connections in Divisive Times. She's been the longtime head of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, a position she's leaving to join the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Denver's Isle of School of Theology. And Pastor Tracy Perry does ministry and social justice work across the state. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Glad you. Glad to be here. It's wonderful being here. I wonder if we could start with a sort of round robin. Why is political and social divisiveness the church's problem to address? I mean, other culprits are, you know, maybe dark money in politics, social media, disinformation, a lack of education. Convince me the church has a role to play. Pastor Perry. Yes. The role of the church and the call and mission of the church is to absolutely inform the congregants, the members, because they're part of society. And the church is to be an example in this world against political division, against racial injustice and social injustice. And if you just give a soft music and candlelight sermon, a (laughs) feel-good sermon, and people go back out into the world and are exhibiting racism and kindness— You've missed the mark as a pastor. Of course, one person's information is another person's propaganda. Right. But the information has to come from a place of speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. Everyone is not going to accept the truth, but you speak the truth. It's called preaching that dangerous sermon. Mm -hmm. And for me, as a black woman, at any given time, I'm going to always speak to the truth of racial injustice and Mm -hmm. social injustice. And if it means that I won't be in your pulpit, 
guess what? I'm called to preach. I'll be in another pulpit. I hear Amanda Henderson yes. saying yes a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I feel like the church is the people. Yes. And you know, the church is not a building. The church is the people. And mm-hmm. for me as a Christian, the church is the people of Christ. And our role is to love and to practice this love with one another and to practice this love outside the walls. So When we are talking about the divisiveness that we're experiencing in Mm. our political sphere and in our communities, it's in our churches. We can't avoid it. And it is not our job to make people comfortable. It's our job to help people move through the thick, difficult, messy things of life Mm -hmm. so that we might better love one another. I I want to point out that you are the outgoing head of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, Reverend Henderson. Do you feel that that is true, that same idea that the message should go beyond the walls? Do you think that's true for mosques and synagogues? Yeah, I do. And in my work with folks who are Muslim and folks who are Jewish, each of us have this call to uh, love our neighbor, to try and make our communities places where all people are welcome and where all people can thrive. Mark Feldmeyer, you wrote this book, A House Divided, Engaging the Issues Through the Politics of Compassion. Convince me the church has a role at this Well, what can feel like a broken moment in the country. Mm, Yeah. I think we make a grave mistake if we assume that that Hebrew and Christian scripture is politically neutral. I think what we have in scripture is a deep and eternal commitment toward certain people who are oppressed, those who are hungry, uh, the stranger in Hebrew, the word is ger, people who are marginalized and imprisoned. Throughout Scripture, from Genesis to the very end, we see this uh, connection between justice and mercy and the faith that we practice, and we can't separate those two uh, without falling into this sort of dualism that that a lot of churches practice. Give that, me an example. What do you mean? So we separate, for example, eternal life with life on this earth. We separate good from evil, body from spirit. Um, physical needs from spiritual needs. When when Scripture, and in particular the New Testament, understands that care for the body is as important as care for the soul. Okay, th- this all sounds lovely, right? Love thy neighbor, and the work of a church should extend beyond its walls. But I, I know you see the political divides in your own congregations. How do you navigate it? Absolutely. I, in serving a rural congregation here that I had served, my situation is I'm in Colorado. It's homogenous. It's 88% white. And where I was serving, it was 98%. And my husband said he and I were the other 2%. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't politicize the pulpit, but at times comments were made, you know, about, well, Black Lives Matter and You know, that seems a Democratic tool to get Trump out and to come against the Republicans. And I would stand back from that because that's not for me. That's your opinion. But at the end of the day, black lives do matter. And I would tell them we'd have these open conversations because that's what I do, too. I go to different congregations and community groups speaking about racial and social injustice and justice and letting them know when we'd sit down and have conversations that to racist white officers, to white supremacists, black lives 
do not matter. However, we matter to God. How is that message received? Well, for the ones who are open-minded and want to learn more and know more culturally, it's received pretty well because they don't know the whole experience. And I get to tell them what my experience is when you talk about a racial and political divide is that if an officer pulls you over as a white person, it's completely different. You're concerned about, I'm going to get a ticket. How do I talk myself out of this? But for myself as a black woman and my children who my heart's in my throat, if they ever get pulled over, I'm wondering, and I have to assume that every white officer that pulls me over is racist because it can go from zero to 100. Doesn't mean they are, but I have to be careful. So the same way I teach my children tactical training, I have to do it also. Keep your hands on the wheel. Keep my wallet in the middle with my license. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. You tell me to get my wallet, get my license. I have to reiterate my license is in the middle. Can I get it? And this is an experience you've shared yes. with parishioners. Yes, and people outside of the church mm-hmm. to give more insight. Does that drive some people away from the church when they hear it? You know what I have found? The majority did not know that it was like that mm-hmm. for black people because it's not their reality. And they will say that. So the goal is to dispel the myths. Do some people get upset knowing that? Yes, absolutely. Will I still speak it? Yes. Pastor Feldmeyer, tell me what you mean about the politics of compassion, the subtitle of your book, how that plays out in whatever political divisions you might see in Highlands Ranch. So at the heart of it, the, the word compassion, of course, means to suffer with in the Latin. In the Greek, it comes from this wonderful little word, and it, it's splankna, which literally refers to the gut. And the ancients believed that the source of human emotion was not in the mind, it wasn't in the heart even, but it was in the gut. And so that when you see an injustice, when you see something that you would consider evil or an accident, for example, that could be preventable, and we might even say today, uh, my stomach turned when I saw that, Mm. or I felt that deeply in my gut, or I'm nervous and I have butterflies. So compassion literally is to feel in your gut what you see before you. And then to be so moved as to act on that uh, emotion in ways that that care for the other, that see the need and the pain and the suffering of the other. And so we apply that politics of compassion to a context that we're all living in, which is more like a, a politics of contempt. So the starting place for most conversations are adversarial rather than trying to find that common ground that says we all agree that this particular event or issue uh, needs to be addressed, not from a partisan perspective, but from a shared consensus about what is good and right in the world. Hmm. Do I hear you calling for almost an override of the initial gut reaction, fight or flight Hmm. response to something more thoughtful? Well, sure. You know, fight and flight is this uh, posture comes from literally millions of years of human tribalism, right? This thinking of if, if we disagree, we have to either fight it out or we have to run from each other. And my understanding of the gospel invites us to a bigger table and a longer table. And the longer we can stay at that table in conversation, uh, the more of an opportunity we have to see in the face of the other 
uh, the very image of God. But, you know, Amanda Henderson, it doesn't feel like that table is in Washington right now. (laughs) (laughs) Or across America. Yeah, across America. But honestly, this is one of the reasons why I think that that religious communities are so important in this moment is there aren't many spaces where we are able to really, truly dig into that place of compassion to really truly hear one another's stories like Pastor Perry shared, to really hear one another's experiences. And too often our churches have either given over these conversations to the political realm and said, we don't talk about politics in the church. And I feel like that is really abdicating our our responsibility as people who are called to lead and to love and to care for one another and to build connections. And it takes digging in to those difficult spaces. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about our role as faith leaders is to have one arm that's comforting and one arm that's pushing. <laughs> and and I think of this like you're you're lighting a fire and challenging people that that it's this dance of comfort and challenge and comfort and challenge. And if you're doing too much of one and not enough of the other, then you are losing that balance to move people toward those deeper connections with God and with one another. And that means diving into the most important topics of our time and our lifetime, like racism, and mm-hmm. and understanding what our role is as religious people in uh, maintaining the institutions of racism, starting and maintaining, and, and of healing. And when it comes about politics and people, you know, you see the Jesus and the warm, fuzzy Jesus <laughs> the of, lamb. you know, right, the <laughs> attitudes, you know. But you serve a very political Jesus, You serve a Jesus who stood against the Pharisees and called them hypocrites in the synagogues Mm -hmm. because they were more so concerned with religion versus a true faith in God about money. And I'll even say like filling the pews, making sure the people Mm -hmm. would follow them to the point that our Savior actually went into the temple, flipped over the tables. And I love the verse. He went and made a whip. Because there were money changers and people disrespecting the house of God, and he whipped them out of the temple. So when people say, you know, and I've heard it, that, you know, if Jesus was here, he would absolutely stand beside and be peaceful. Jesus would come here and be like, I need to clean out just about every church here (laughs) because I need you to preach and teach the truth. My people can only be informed if you tell the truth. Isn't the scariest thing, though, someone in the political sphere who claims Jesus is on their side? Mm -hmm. It's like the unarguable debate position. You know, what do you you think, Pastor Feldmeyer? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's the danger of conflating ultimate concerns with sort of local proximate concerns, that Hmm. we suddenly assume that if somebody doesn't agree with us on this issue— and we, th- we see this issue as being uh, an ultimate issue that mm-hmm. uh, rather than a political issue. And, you know, we're, we're working this stuff out in the political arena. But that doesn't mean that these things are metaphysical, ultimate concerns. And so if we can sort of diffuse those conversations and understand that any solution to a political issue still has its finite limitations – 
in the broader context of what we might call God's infinite possibilities. And so when we start to make ultimate are these things in our lives that, uh, that are problems and they become ultimate concerns, that gives way to religious extremism. Mm. Uh, it gives way to what we might call a, like a functional atheism that says, unless we vote this way or unless the election turns this way, all things are lost, right? Uh, everything hinges on this. And that, that is just so insightful. And it makes me wonder if that is a ploy that politicians use. In other words, <laughs> of course. It, it's yeah. a winning message to say, it's either me or eternal damnation. Right. You know, I, I, and yeah. I feel like so many of the issues that we grapple with and that you, frankly, uh, Pastor Feldmeyer, in your book grapple with, uh, immigration, healthcare, climate change. Now, these are important issues. They are even existential, but they are often made to be in this all or nothing camp. Do you think that's true? These are issues that are profoundly important to God, that God is profoundly concerned about, but they are not ultimate concerns. And they are concerns and issues that require uh, I liked what Reverend Amanda talked about, this challenge. Uh, what did you say, Amanda? The, the comfort, comfort and the challenge. Comfort and challenge, yeah. So you might also call it sort of this dance between conflict and conciliation. That, you know, uh, America was founded on this concept of the rigorous debate of ideas. And yet the Christian faith also understands that we have to apply a prophetic spirit to the world. And this creates this awkward but absolutely necessary dance and the role that we play in that as faith leaders and as as churches to to model what it looks like to dance in civilized in humble and in generative ways when someone is claiming religious authority especially a politician claiming religious authority we need to ask ourselves, how are they using that authority? Are they using that to oppress or hold power over another person or move themselves into a greater position of power? Or are they using that to move us closer to God, to one another, to assure thriving for all people, to build systems of, of justice that allow people to thrive? You know, th this is the, one of the things that's most troubling to me is when people use this you know, claim of religious authority that has been gifted them to harm other people and to oppress people. That is the number one flag that, you know, we need to be challenging this. Mm -hmm. Pastor Barry, any thoughts on this? Yes, I think that when we look at our times right now, you know, the Bible's not a prop and it has been used mm -hmm. as that. You know, I think that when you look at religion and muddying it at times with politics, and that's what happens is it becomes muddied. Anything will be said, people will, running for president, vice president, whatever, will sometimes pander to the evangelicals or the Christian group to try to get those people to be part of their constituency and will say just about anything. So I really, God tells, them, tells us, you'll know them by their fruits. Test and try the spirit. So if you're not living into it, when there's division in the land, racism in the land, social injustice in the land, but then you purport to be a person of peace, something's wrong. And it's evident. You know, Pastor Feldmeyer, in your book, you bring up immigration. Mm -hmm. Now, that question inherently tests 
<laughs> what the current administration is doing. Does it not? How, how would you broach that conversation? Well, and, and I did. And so the, yeah. <laughs> the, the book, you know, is, is eight chapters based on eight sermons that I preached in the early part of 2019 about the issues. And what I will tell you is we do make a mistake if we assume that people don't want to talk about politics and church because they spend six days of their lives talking about the very things that we're talking about today. And they expect that what we have to say on Sunday mornings or whenever it is we gather for worship has something to speak into those conversations. I will say that it was almost uh, either providential or coincidental, depending on your perspective. But when I preached that sermon on immigration, it was the first sermon in the series. And it was also the very week that the borders were blowing up in in our country and uh, over uh, the current administration's uh, immigration policy. And so we had an increase of 24% attendance on that particular Sunday. Did people know you were going to broach that issue? I, uh, we advertised and promoted that in the weeks ahead. And so I had some people who said, I'm not coming. And I had others who, who showed up specifically because they heard about, you know, this sermon series and, uh, and wanted to hear what we had to say. Did you change any minds? That's a great question. I, <laughs> I had a lunch with um, one of my members just a few weeks ago who specifically mentioned that sermon on immigration and said that she had come to church mostly in agreement with Trump's policies. And she left the church feeling like she had a better biblical grasp of the concept of how to treat the immigrant or the stranger in our midst. And uh, she is a decided Republican in every way. But that, for me, was affirmation that we spoke fairly and theologically and not based in partisan soundbites. You know, Jesus also always stood against that which was wrong. Jesus would not have condoned racism, period. Misogyny being disrespectful to women. I mean, Mary Magdalene was considered a woman of the city. She came and washed his feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. He could have easily discounted her. Women were less than. You are to be kind to the stranger. God said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the apostles asked him, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When you did it for the least of these, he did it for me. Pastor Feldmeyer, your book touches on a lot of issues people are thinking about ahead of the election. Uh, I mentioned some of them, mm-hmm. climate change, immigration, mm-hmm. health care. Mm-hmm. And you in this book, provide exercises, prayers, questions about how people might either find common ground or at least relate to one another if they can't agree. Maybe you could lead us in one of these exercises on abortion. I mean, I'm just going to, I'm going to note that Colorado, yeah, I know. It's, it's the third rail. Uh, you know, I note that Coloradans are voting on Prop 115, which would yes. ban the procedure after 22 weeks with very few exceptions. Yes. Uh, this issue also front and center in the confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, how would you start that conversation at family dinner, Pastor? Thank you. So in the book, I use what, what I call axioms, and an axiom is a simple statement that is taken to be self-evidently true, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, okay. or, for example, the sun rises in the east. So in the book, I use axioms to build out some common ground where people can start having conversations. So with respect to the, the topic of abortion, I might approach that with a very simple and non-theological axiom but more of a legal and practical axiom that would say something like, could we agree that 
to be truly free human beings implies that we have the right to exercise freedom over our own bodies. And that applies not only to the issue of abortion, but as Pastor Perry mentioned earlier, the right for a person with a black body to move through this world safely and with the fullness of life. It would also apply to the issue of, say, medical aid and dying, which Colorado addressed a few years ago in an election, that the patient under the right conditions has the right to end their life if they so choose. But this axiom strikes me as a liberal axiom. In other words, <laughs> the, the Catholic Church opposed that measure on Colorado's ballot. And, you know, the notion that you can choose to do it with your body, uh, doesn't that ignore the fact that there might be another body growing inside you? What I'm suggesting is that in our national debate, we throw the issue of abortion back on women as though it's their problem. When, in fact, we might claim greater responsibility as a culture for creating the conditions by which a woman may only have one choice rather than forming the bonds of care and community that would give her multiple choices. And so that's my response to your, your insight about my first axiom being more liberal. This would open up doors, I think, mm-hmm. to saying we hear those who believe in the right to life, and this is one way to address that concern. So that the discussion rather than treading the ground that we are so familiar with that inevitably leads to people being at loggerheads, Mm -hmm. asks a larger question about the community, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how it supports life writ large, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Amanda Henderson, I think I heard you. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that this is such an important point, and I'm really glad that Pastor Mark brought it up. And I want to name that there is a whole movement around that called the reproductive justice movement that was started by black women who (laughs) spoke and named choice. What choice? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, there's a long history specifically of black women not having control over their bodies and their bodies being used as a tool of society. And as women of color specifically have called out and lifted up that topics such as abortion are far more complicated than our current political arguments would have us think. Mm -hmm. And we do have a deep responsibility to assure that everyone has the ability to have reproductive freedom to be able to have a child and support that child and have a living wage and child care and uh, health care so that they can raise that child and safety for their children and that reproductive rights, health, and justice is far bigger than mm-hmm. one argument, that it's about our societies and how we care for one another. You're saying that the notion of choice has been too narrowly defined, mm-hmm. that it has to um, for sure. it has to take in so many of the other factors that drive women to make decisions about what to do with their bodies. Yeah. Our choices there are is no, always limited. Yeah, yeah. Pastor Perry, Pastor go Perry, for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is no black and white in this instance. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, I'm pro-life for me because I've never been put in a position. I've had my children. I didn't have, wasn't put in a position where I had to battle with that question. However, for other women, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. And when people are very radical like that about Mm pro-life, my answer is always, well, 
you know, there's a lot of babies being born, and there might be a seven or eight women on your block who are going to have abortions. And since you're so against them having abortion, are you going to raise their children? To Pastor Perry's point, I think what she's suggesting is that, you know, to say that I am pro-choice doesn't mean that I am not pro-life right. and vice versa. Right. And so my argument might be that to have a genuinely pro-life commitment really requires or demands us to develop a more comprehensive advocacy for life both within the womb and outside the womb. What about the life that is at the borders, the immigrant life? Mm -hmm. What about the black lives that are uh, moving through this world in fear and, and violence against them? What about the people who right now are on respirators and ICUs due to COVID, those that are incarcerated? So a pro-life position needs to be more widely understood. And well, I hear from both of you, uh, from all of you, a fuller, more encompassing definition of pro-life mm -hmm. and a fuller, more yes. encompassing yes. definition of pro-choice. Yes. Now, I want to say that those are not necessarily terms we use as journalists. Um, so <laughs> or I'm, as advocates. I'm reflecting your yeah. own language here and yeah. not saying that it's mine. Go ahead, mm -hmm. Pastor. Really, when you look at that, and Amanda had brought this up, uh, Reverend Amanda had brought this up, about black women. Over 400 years of oppression, black babies' lives don't matter because it's always in lower socioeconomic. It's pushed to have abortions. You don't need more black babies. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to our bodies, I know of women who went in and wanted to get, you know, something like a tubal ligation or something and were given hysterectomies, mm -hmm. you know, or they're burn, their tubes burn so that they couldn't have babies. So see, it's a different story. I want to ask you specifically about President Trump. I mean, this is a man who has apparently engaged in what would traditionally be seen as sinful acts, you know, accusations of adultery and sexual misconduct, financial impropriety, a demonization of those who disagree with him. And yet we know that he has solid support in some religious circles. You know, his role selecting conservative judges and justices is very important to some Americans. Will you reflect on that for me? Uh, Reverend Henderson, you want to start with that? Sure. I guess first I would say it'll be interesting to see how the numbers come back this year. I mm. think that there are some changing tides. And, and I would name that some of the behind-the-scenes conversations and arguments within specifically evangelical circles, within religious circles about this topic. And, you know, how can you call yourself <laughs> grounded and rooted in morality and justice and, and loving your neighbor and support the policies and the actions and the words of President Trump. I think that there's a lot more pushback than we often hear about or see. Uh, I actually think it's caused a great divide and a lot of reflection on what does it mean for a religious group to give itself over to a political party without thought. And that is dangerous. It, we've seen that throughout Is, that a, fair, is that a fair way to say it, though, without thought? I mean, the, it's the embracing of any political figure, no matter the party, 
is going to be of a flawed individual mm -hmm. and an individual whose policies you both disagree with and agree with. Yeah, I guess maybe yeah. without thought isn't the right word, that I should say without argument, without challenging and pushing back. And we should always be challenging and pushing back. And part of our role as faith leaders is to be prophets and to to speak out and speak clearly when leaders are harming their people. You don't think there's been enough questioning and pushback? From some no. folks, yeah. Yeah, some. in those circles. I mean, I think that there certainly are. And and so I don't want to minimize the religious leaders who are in my circles who I see and hear speaking loudly and building movements of Vote the Common Good. And there are national mm -hmm. movements of religious folks who are speaking out against the ways that this president has led, spoken, policies, all of it. Um, if, if I just am curious, yeah. Pastor Feldmeyer, if Reverend Henderson took that message to your pulpit in Highlands Ranch, <laughs> how would that go over? Well, it'd be helpful if, uh, if I was on vacation at the time, let's put it that way. <laughs> but and it's not that I it's not that I disagree with her. Um, you know, before COVID hit, our in-person attendance, you know, we have 1,200 people a weekend in worship. And so and Douglas County, as we know, is a, um, a relatively conservative county in the state. And so we have people on both sides of the aisles. Uh, and my work as a pastor and as a faith leader and, and a preacher in particular is to honor that space in the pulpit and uh, speak truth to the values that we see as being compromised without necessarily and even naming the political leaders or parties themselves. And I guess my point here is, it's easy for those conversations to bleed into this tribalism mm. in which you're either right or wrong. And what I see in my congregation is a desire to speak about our shared differences and how we can address those in creative, collaborative, and life-giving ways. Okay, should you all lose your tax-exempt status? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. I'm saying yeah. yes, yes. For real. Yes. 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 I want to have yes. this conversation <laughs> because if, if, if churches become places of and they are advocacy, I don't if that's the right word, mm -hmm. then. Uh, go ahead. I'm very curious, Reverend Henderson, on your thoughts about <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, yes. I, you know, um, I think that churches should be part of the fabric of the community and should be contributing to that financially. And our tax dollars support our our streets and our teachers and our firefighters and our services. And the amount of tax dollars, especially property taxes for religious communities, I don't think it's right. I understand where it came from originally. And I think, you know, people will say that churches are muzzled because they can't speak their political views. I think that's not right. I think that churches speak their political views all the time, uh, whether they're speaking them outwardly or not speaking them, which is another way of speaking them, staying silent, and they're holding to their values. So I think that part of our foundational commitments as the United States of America is assuring that all people are treated equal. And I think that the tax code that has omitted and left churches and religious communities 
in a place where they don't contribute financially to the good of the community through taxes, I think that's wrong. So that's a different direction than being able to speak political views. That's mm. not why I think they should be not collecting taxes. Pastor Feldmeyer. I, I'm fully in support of the, the current laws. I mean, I think we um, we have this historic separation of church and state, and that gives us a safe place in which to speak about issues. But isn't speaking about issues blurring church and state? I, 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 don't, I think they're already blurred, but it lives in that space, which is a gray space. It's a space that, um, that we have to speak into. That it, it, it can't be black and white, mm. for sure. Pastor Perry, any thoughts on this? When it comes to tax exemption, uh-huh. yeah. oh, I think absolutely churches should be tax exempt. I also think people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds mm. should be tax exempt and the working poor. But for the church, it should be in the sense of our church is right now in a state of really dwindling. People are leaving church. And right now, church is being done in an entirely different way. And there's a lot of churches that are doing the best they can to do outreach with limited resources. So if they only have a certain pool of money and then that is taxed, that diminishes what they can do in the community and for the church. I'll just say that we, we know that there are any number of people who say when there is an issue to address, a problem to solve in society, government should not be the first place we turn to to rectify it. Mm-hmm. Communities of faith, for instance, can be a place for that. Charity can be a place for that. I would rather give my money to a church than to the government. I mean, that's, that, that is definitely a perspective. But there have to be the resources. There have to be the resources. And I think it's a, it's a struggle because Mm -hmm. churches can choose, pick and choose who they want to serve. So if we're leaving it to the churches to provide charitable resources, mm. then that church can decide I'm not going to support a gay family or mm-hmm. adopt a child to gay parents. You know, we run into all of these very real issues. I, I'm with Pastor Perry and that if a church doesn't have resources, clearly, you know, I think that our tax structure shouldn't be taxing people who have less money. But the reality is that religious communities across the country hold a lot of wealth and property, and those are predominantly white communities mm. who have longstanding wealth in those properties. So I feel like it's another system of maintaining white supremacy and economic disparity to keep power in the hands of predominantly white churches who have those resources. I don't disagree that a lot of churches are very much struggling. And so there's there's no reason to place further hardship on those churches. But there are also, we also need to recognize that our religious communities are also part of our power structures that are maintaining systems that are benefiting some and harming Mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. Well, Sunday is the most segregated hour Mm -hmm. of the week. I had that in my script notes. (laughs) Of course, that's a Dr. King Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're talking about whether a church is tax-exempt or not, they can still withhold who they're going to help. You know, I can imagine that there are people who are not of faith listening to this conversation who might think, you know what, faith is the problem. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's those who trust in science purely, those who trust in personal responsibility, not some God out there, Mm -hmm. who have the right idea. (laughs) Uh, 
I'd like each of you to reflect on that. Uh, Pastor Feldmeyer. The question for me is, how does my faith inform my understanding of the issues and, and how I ought to vote? But also understanding that even that faith has its limitations uh, within the broader context of the conversations we're having. Reverend Henderson? So to me, I feel like that we are talking about our shared humanity. And honestly, that's what I'm always talking about is our, our shared humanity and our shared commitment to living life together. Whether you are religious or not religious, that makes no difference. We are all trying to figure out as Americans, as Coloradans, how to live together. So these are big questions that, one, we need to be talking about in religious communities, but we need to be talking about as an American society of how do we live with our diverse religious views, personal views, experiences, and how do we do that in a way that assures that all people have the options, the rights, the freedom to be able to live the life that they want to live. So, you know, while these are religious questions and we've been having the conversation in this frame, these are human questions. Pastor Barry, anything to add? It is a bigger issue. It is about humanity and being humane. And everyone is invited, everyone, be it a Christian or non-Christian, of how through whatever your faith is in, science, even if it's not in God, doing that which will make a best difference in the world to improve people's lives. Okay. Uh, as we wind down this conversation, um, Reverend Henderson, in your book, Holy Chaos, you write about joy. Mm. <laughs> Tell it. <laughs> and, and yes. you know, we've had an important discussion. I'm not sure how joyful it's been so far. <laughs> Tell us why joy is important and how you're finding joy at a time like this yeah. of holy chaos. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, honestly, I think joy is an act of building resilience. Throughout time, so many people have lived through real difficulty and hardship and complexity and oppression. And they made it through, through resisting and finding connection and joy and celebration in the midst of it all. And by tapping into those little places of joy, and it comes for me in moments of watching my dogs play in the yard or laughing with my kids while playing a game of cards or talking with neighbors and friends. You know, these are the moments that help remind me it's in laughing and being together that we continue to be able to reach into those reservoirs of strength and resilience and connection together. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. It's an honor. Reverend Amanda Henderson is the author of Holy Chaos, Creating Connections in Divisive Times. She's stepping down as head of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado to lead the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Denver's Iliff School of Theology. Also, Pastor Tracy Perry, whose ministry focuses on social justice, and Mark Feldmeyer, senior pastor at St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch. His new book, A House Divided, Engaging the Issue through the politics of compassion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
There are a lot of people in Colorado who deserve an I Voted sticker right now. More than a million, in fact. I'm Andrew Kenny, and this week on CPR's politics podcast, Purplish, we dig down deep into that big number to look at who's been voting, why, and what it means for the campaigns and the parties going into the election. Plus, we try to separate truth from fiction and tales of voter suppression. That's all in this week's episode of Purplish from CPR News, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Casinos are pushing for higher betting limits and new games. But will it be enough to lure high rollers? Here's CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland on Amendment 77. When people want to play the card game Baccarat, they can't do it in Colorado casinos. Most of those people go to Las Vegas. That's David Farahi, the chief operating officer at Monarch Casino in Blackhawk. His company is among the largest financial backers of an amendment on this year's ballot that could potentially mean a big change for gaming regulations. Coloradans are voting on whether to let residents of the state's gambling towns eliminate a cap on how much a person can risk on a single bet. The measure also includes adding new games, like Baccarat. Farahi says Coloradans spend hundreds of millions of dollars gaming in other states, and that some of that money could be spent here. I don't think any of us think that we're going to be able to stop people from going to Las Vegas, but the person that goes to Vegas, you know, 6, 10, 12 times a year, if we can get them to come to one of the Colorado's three gaming towns, one or two or three of those times, it keeps the dollars in the state. Casino gambling has been legal in Colorado for 30 years. The state's restrictions have loosened over the decades. In 2009, the limit on individual bets was raised from $5 to the current $100. Last November, Colorado voters made sports betting legal. Casinos are only allowed in three historic mining towns in the state, including Central City. Jeremy Fay is the mayor. He says he doesn't see smaller casinos changing their rules right away. He says things like increased training for dealers cost money, and even small expenses can add up. Little costs of changing the little placards on all the tables, you know, getting new machines, all, all that stuff. There's, there's an upfront cost in that that I don't believe in talking to our operators, it will be worth it to them right off the bat. Faye says Blackhawk, the city with the largest resorts with the deepest pockets, is the city most likely to see immediate effects. And while he thinks the changes will bring more gamblers, it will be a while before Colorado is competing with Las Vegas. We still don't have a, you know, a Michelin restaurant at every casino, or there's not going to be a Cirque du Soleil in Central City anytime soon. Still, he's hopeful a change in the state's gaming regulations could lead to new development for his small town in the future. Detractors say opening the door to unlimited betting could create more problems than it's worth. Jeff Hunt is the director of the Colorado Christian University Centennial Institute, a conservative think tank. He says high-stakes betting could lead to a higher rate of problem gambling in the state. People could be losing uh, unlimited amounts of money, uh, jeopardizing their, their mortgage payments, their health care payments. The impact of previous limit increases hasn't been closely studied in Colorado. If the amendment passes, the fate of casino gambling will be in the hands of just a few Coloradans. Combined, the three gambling hubs have a population of roughly 2,000, according to the most recent census data. Hunt says the potential negative effects would extend beyond the boundaries of the tiny mountain towns. This is going to spill out into the community, and we're going to have to deal with the the social consequences of this, whether you live 
in the three mountain communities or not. Cripple Creek, a city of roughly 1,200, is the most populous of the state's three gaming towns. Jeff Mosher is the events coordinator in Cripple Creek. He says the local community supports the measure. The casinos are a major contributor to the town's economy. That's what keeps our lights on and our roads paved. Mosher says the town could use the extra cash, especially now. The state's gambling towns were hit hard by the pandemic. Gaming revenues essentially went to zero in April and May during the shutdown. They've bounced back somewhat since casinos reopened in June, but there's still a hole in local budgets. There's no official estimate on how much additional revenue the changes might bring and whether it'll be enough to help. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters. Special thanks to Haley Sanchez. This is CPR.